Well, good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good. It is so wonderful to be here. Thank you, Sherry, for that generous introduction. I have so enjoyed getting to know the people of Christ Church. Um, as Sherry mentioned, I've, I've lived in the um, Chicagoland area up until recently for the better part of 15 years, attending Wheaton College and then also residing here as, a, as an adult. And uh, many of my friends have been a part of Christ Church. Many of them have come to faith or even uh, been strengthened in their faith as a part of Christ Church. And so it's just a very, um, I consider it such an honor and a privilege to get to be with you. So thank you for uh, welcoming me with, with open arms. Well, before I pray, I'd like to read our key scripture passage for this morning. It can be found in the book of 2 Corinthians. This is Paul's second letter to one of the early churches at Corinth. And you can find it either on the screen uh, or in your pew Bibles uh, or uh, maybe some of you, your cell phones, if you're technolog technologically savvy. But I am going to read it for us this morning as we, uh, as we begin this message together today. Beginning in chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 10. And Paul is speaking here right prior to verse 10. He's talking about the subject of generosity and how he's encouraging it to be something that is cheerful and joyful. Um, but he goes on to say even something a little deeper uh, as he goes into verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I'm going to pause right there. Uh, he says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way. Why? How? So that uh, we can feel more secure. No. So that we can feel like we've accomplished something. No. Although I would admit... I would be guilty of feeling both of those things as the fallacy of why I've been enriched in every way. But that's not what he says. He says, you will be enriched in every way. Why? So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, verse 12 is so powerful what he says here. I want us to lean in. He says, this service that you perform, and he's speaking of generosity. That's what he was just speaking of in the prior service. So this generosity is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people. So it's, it's not only paying for amazing things. It's not only uh, building an, a, a new worship spaces and, and, and even feeding people around the world. It is doing those things, but it's not only paying for ministry. It's not only advancing with our dollars of giving. He says, it not only does that, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. He goes on to say, because of this service, because of this generosity by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel. Here's what he's saying here. It's not just that when we give that things happen when we give to them. He's saying the act of giving itself is a confession of the gospel. Or I'll say it should be a confession of the gospel. And why is that so important? Because in itself, other people will praise God because of that giving. And then he goes on to say, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of this surpassing grace that God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. 
Generosity should be driven by the gospel. Generosity should be something that doesn't just go out somewhere, but that comes from somewhere, comes from a heart that understands what Christ did for us. And that's going to be the premise of our message today. Let's, uh, let's pray if we can. Gracious and heavenly Father, we are so humbled and thankful to be standing in your presence today, Lord. We are so just in awe of how your word can continue to speak to us. It is a living, breathing truth. And we thank you so much for the teachings of Paul. God, we thank you so much for the teachings of Jesus. We thank you for every single writer in scripture that you have ordained and divinely inspired so that we might have wisdom and direction in our lives today. And God, would you be with us? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, would you illuminate truths for us in a way that only you can? And it's in your name we ask these things. Amen. Now, we've been on this, uh, I, I say we, I am a part of another church back in Oklahoma. Sherry mentioned I reside in Oklahoma now. My husband-to-be is a beef cattle rancher, and so he so dearly wanted to be here this weekend, but it's the season, if any of you are in ranching, uh, he's getting, preparing and hauling a bunch of hay and getting it ready for the winter, which I hate even saying the word winter when it's so beautiful outside, but that's where he is today. And uh, so I have been even living afar and part of another church in Tulsa, I've been journeying with you on this take root journey. And many of you, I know if, whether you're newer to Christ church or you've been here for many decades, this take root journey has been all about rooting ourselves in Christ for the sake of others. And uh, in fact, that, that whole premise was based on another one of Paul's letters to the early church. In fact, you'll see on the screen in, in, in Colossians chapter two, Paul says this, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's what this whole take root journey has been about. In fact, our take root journey has been about three things. Many of you could probably recite them. The first is that we would root our lives more deeply in Christ for the sake of others. The second thing in this take root journey is that we want to grow capacity on this very campus for long-term impact and growth in multiple ways. And the third part of this take root journey is that we want to extend flourishing to thousands of others through all the things you're doing on Roosevelt Road and across the world and even right here through new locations of Christ Church around this city and others. But I want to focus in on that first part today. I want to focus in on what does it mean to root ourselves more deeply in Christ for the sake of others? What does it mean that the gospel is something that drives us? We are so rooted in the truth of Christ that it literally overflows in our generosity. Not that we pay for somebody to come to know the Lord, but they actually come to know the Lord by the service we perform of generosity. So uh, we're going to look at three truths today that help us to be able to understand this more fully, fully. And to illustrate the first truth, I'd like to share with you a story. So as Sherry mentioned, I went to Wheaton College for my undergraduate study. There may be some Wheaties in the rooms today, very possibly. I see some nods. And uh, so I went to Wheaton College 15 or so years ago. And in my sophomore year at Wheaton, I was dating this gentleman. 
And uh, we went to his family's house for dinner for the very first time. Uh, And uh, if any of you remember when maybe you were meeting the in-laws for the first time or meeting somebody very important for dinner for the first time, it's, it's a very nervous experience. And possibly like you, I was very nervous that evening. Well, most people serve dinner in one of two ways. Most of us either serve dinner family style, where you'll put different bowls in the center of the table, and everyone around the table gets to choose their portions from which they're going to eat in those family style bowls. The second way that many people serve their meals is buffet style, where you will put those different bowls on a kitchen island or a countertop, and there again, you get to choose your portions of what you're going to eat that day. This meal was served neither of those two ways. This possibly because it was an eight-member family, this uh, mother of the gentleman I was dating had pre-portioned all of our food for us. Now, to someone who eats uh, a lot of carbs and sugars, and I could do better probably on my vegetables, I know I could do better on my meats, which I'm going to have to learn being married to a cattle rancher, Um, I struggled quite a bit when I see already pre-portioned on my plate a chicken breast, a bowl of salad, a bowl of uh, baked beans, a pile of green beans, a dinner roll, and I'm thinking... I'm going to insult this woman. I cannot eat all this food. And I'm looking at this bowl of baked beans. I don't even like baked beans, even though I'm from Oklahoma. And so I'm looking at all of this food, and I know I have to start on those beans because there are so many of them. So I get started on those beans. I go back to this chicken breast. I go over here to the dinner salad, work on the dinner roll. I do love those. And then I'm getting back to this bowl of baked beans, and I am almost finished. There's like two beans left. And the gentleman's father, who is sitting across the table from me, who is a kind of an intimidating attorney in town. My apologies to any attorneys in the room or former attorneys in the room, but you can be kind of intimidating at times. I looked across the table at him and he gruffly said, were you going to leave any for us? (laughs) Apparently that bowl was the entire eight member family's bowl of baked beans. That was an interesting night for a couple of reasons, and I will just leave it right there. I share that story with you, not only for you to understand my humanness, and it's 100% true, sadly, um, but there's a much bigger point from that story that I'd like as a foundation for our first point today that we see in Scripture as well. What's interesting about that night is I was so nervous I was so nervous, I was so focused on my own place setting, and had I even looked out one other time during dinner to look at any of the other place settings of the room, I would have noticed no one else had a massive bowl of baked beans to the right of their cup. But I didn't. I was completely focused all in my own sphere. See, generosity is not meant to be done alone, but it's difficult, isn't it? It's kind of like money in politics. You don't talk about it at a party, right? And even right now, as you walked in today and heard that our message was about giving, it's possibly that some of you had a little tightening in the stomach and you said to your your neighbor, you said, we should have gone to the lake today. It's about giving. Why didn't we go to the lake? And it's okay. You can can laugh. And uh, this subject sometimes is something it's more difficult to talk about. But generosity is not meant to be done in isolation. In fact, all of the cases of giving in the Bible were incredibly shared. Whether it was the woman who brought her two coins to the front and Jesus stopped the worship service to share with everyone what she had given. 
or whether it was Paul talking about the Macedonian church that was living in poverty and gave out of this incredible abundance, our generosity is meant to be so public. And this is point number one. Generosity, truly driven by the gospel, is done in community. One of the things I have loved about this Take Root journey is listening to the stories of the people of Christ Church. It has been beautiful, hasn't it? And I want to encourage you with this, that of the stories that have been shared, I know there are hundreds, possibly a few thousand more that have yet to be shared. What God is doing in your heart and this gospel-driven understanding of what Christ has done for you, I want to plant that seed that you might allow other people to look at the place setting at your table, that you might allow God just to permeate inside of you. How might that service that you perform, like God said, be overflowing in expressions of thanks to God? Because God does not want our generosity to be done in isolation. He wants it to be done in community. There's a second passage of scripture I'd like to look at today, and it's found in the gospel of Luke. And Luke's account of the gospel, we're actually going to look here at chapter 18. It'll be on the screen for you, or you're welcome to follow along uh, in your pew Bibles or as I read. And in this particular passage, and some of you may know this story, this is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, in this story, Jesus is talking about a contrast of two different types of people. And I'm going to begin in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I am not like these other people these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says this. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, what's so significant about this passage in light of what we're talking about, about generosity today? See, when that Pharisee said, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get, well, he was referring, of course, to the tithe. And in fact, the tithe is a very important biblical principle. But here's where the tithe can get distorted and what Jesus was trying to illustrate in this passage of the New Testament. See, every time the tithe was taught in the Old Testament, it was taught as an assumptive biblical principle. If you look at it, it was taught to groups of people that already knew why it was that they would be wanting to tithe. They knew the heart behind it. In fact, there's two different types of laws in the Old Testament. Some of you in here I know are are vast theologians. You may know this, that there are ceremonial laws and there were moral laws. Now, anyone who's ever read the book of Leviticus, you'll know there's plenty of ceremonial laws in the book of Leviticus. You cannot eat chicken until the third day when it's been wrapped in a red cloth and doused with water five times. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
And we read those passages and we say, what does this have to do with our day today? Well, that's because those were ceremonial laws and those were relative to that particular time. Moral laws, however, transcended time and tithing was a moral law, still is. However, something different happened when Jesus came. And what he's trying to illustrate in this passage is that I don't want you to be motivated to do something or, like the Pharisee did, to take pride in doing something because it was a law. I care about your heart. I care about your input more than your output. And this brings me to my second point. Generosity that is truly driven by the gospel focuses on inputs, not outputs. Now, I, I told you I was going to uh, let you see my place setting at the table here today, just like I want us to let others see our place setting. And so I'm going to get a little vulnerable with you for a minute if I can. I know most of you just met me, but maybe after today, you'll, we'll, we'll be closer friends on a different level. So I'm not married yet, as Sherry mentioned, and, and I've never been married. I don't have any um, children yet. And uh, I have obeyed the laws of purity since um, I was told to at age 13. And I've worn this uh, ring finger on my right hand for the last 20 some odd years. Now that was something that for me, um, grew up in a really amazing youth group just uh, north of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm so grateful for the upbringing that I had and uh, that, that, that taught me some of those things at a very young age. But I will tell you, throughout my life, uh, until probably five or six years ago, I obeyed that law because I was a rule follower and because uh, it was taught to me as a rule, not really understanding a lot behind it. And in all the ministry I've done with women and young girls and even all of everything the Lord has done in my own life, If I've learned anything, I've learned that when something is just a rule to follow, boy, is it easy to rationalize it away. If it's not grounded by something much deeper than just the fact of following a rule, so many things can wash it away. About five, six years ago, I met a woman, we'll call her Kimberly for the sake of this story. She was in my women's small group here in uh, Chicagoland. And Kimberly was seeking to know the Lord, but in her lifestyle wasn't obeying all of the laws in the particular area of of purity. And she was really struggling with this notion that her outputs were a certain way that wasn't going to be consistent that would allow her to be baptized. And she was really coming to understand the gospel of Jesus and what he did for her. And I watched a transformation in Kimberly as she made a commitment to surrender her life to the Lordship of Christ, to become baptized, and for her life to be driven by the gospel that taught me a whole new meaning to my decision of purity. See, in my life, rules rules are so important, and they ground us, and they guide us. But when all they are is rules, when all they are is something that that Pharisee can stand up and say, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get, check, check. They quickly waste away. God's not interested in us being rule followers. He is interested in us honoring him 
by having these deep-seated understandings of what he did on the, God, on the cross for us. And I watched my dear friend Kimberly make a powerful decision to surrender her life to the Lordship of Christ. And that decision meant so much to God that he, from that point forward, and everything passed from that, washed everything away, and she was a new creation in him. Friends, generosity, true gospel-driven generosity... It focuses on inputs, not on outputs. The outputs matter. Why? Because they're driven by the inputs, but they're not to be focused on. Jesus was illustrating for us, giving without a heart of understanding who Jesus is and what the gospel has done for us, it's empty. It should be driven by what he's done for us. There's a third passage that I'd love to share with us. And actually, it was referenced earlier in our, in our prayer this morning about Christ being preeminent in our lives. This particular one won't be on the screen today because I uh, was inspired by our prayer this morning. And I want to share this with you. This is from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. This is when Paul is talking about the fact that all things are, are Christ is before all things. All things are to him, by him, through him, and for him. And he says this, he says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. See, when we think about this third point I want to share about generosity, sometimes our generosity can be a compartmentalized area that doesn't touch any other area of our lives. Some of us are great at compartmentalizing, aren't we? We, we have this line item for our generosity, and it might even be a very large line item. It might be X percent larger than last year's line item for giving. But I want you to hear what Paul says in that passage. He says, all things are to him, by him, through him, and for him. Why? Because Christ is before all things. He's the supremacy. And so what does that mean as it relates to our giving? What does that truly mean? I grew up in a household. My, my father is one of the uh, wisest men I've ever known, and I've learned so much from him. But he grew up in an era, and some of you may relate to this, where if you didn't hang on to everything that you had, you might not have it tomorrow. And so from age 13, when I started working by babysitting and doing other odd jobs, I was taught to save 50% of every dollar. No, that's not in the Bible. That's just my dad. And that's the house I grew up in. And so all through high school, all through college, all through grad school, up through age 26, I saved 50% of every dollar. Remember, I'm a rule follower. Now, I was part of a uh, campaign, a generosity initiative, if you will, at, uh, at my church at the time down, down the road here in Naperville. And uh, You could imagine at age 26, and I didn't have any kind of fancy jobs or anything, just regular jobs, but I had worked 13 years and I had what I would say an inappropriate amount of savings for a 26-year-old. But more importantly than that, more dangerous than that, I'll say, is I had an incredibly unhealthy view of what I was putting. uh, I had an unhealthy view of God's provision. I, I, I I didn't have a view of God's provision. I was holding preeminent, not my giving, but I was holding preeminent my saving. 
everything I did was so that I could hit that 50%. Everything I aimed for was, and, and so many of us, maybe you can relate to this. Boy, we're, we're so frugal with everything we spend. And we, we just think, oh, I'm just such a great saver. And by the way, so much of that is so wise. But only you know. And I felt very convicted at age 26. I did not have a good view of the preeminence of Christ and God's provision. I had fear for the future. And even my wise father has been broken of this in recent years. And I credit him to so much of my amazing learning. But he will even confess to this day that that type of thinking negatively guided him for years. See, some of us don't give in the way that God wants us to, not because we're big spenders, because some of you are probably so frugal, no one knows how much you have except for you. But no, we don't give in the ways that we could. Why? Not because of our spending, because of our saving, because something else is preeminent in our lives instead of Christ. See, a true surrendered giver, a gospel-driven giver is someone who's giving truly governs the rest of their financial lives. It's preeminent. Have you ever sat across that mortgage table when you're purchasing a home? Or maybe this wasn't you. It might have been your friend of a friend. And have you ever looked at your spouse or looked at your friend or said to God, okay, honey, we can buy this house. But if we do, some things are going to have to change. Have you ever decided you're going to send that child to a certain college? And so you're making this four-year financial commitment. And you're saying, all right, honey, we can send them to this college. But if we do, some things are going to have to change. God wants our giving to be like that. He wants our giving to be so preeminent, so big for our britches, so by him, to him, through him, and for him, that we stand up there, we look at what it is that we've committed to give, and we say, okay, Lord... I can do this, but if I do, some things are going to have to change. That's what he wants. That's what Paul talks about, that by your confession of the gospel, others will see what you have done. They will see that generosity, and they will praise God for it. If it's not changing us, how will they see him? This third point I want to share is generosity driven by the gospel honors God with 100%. See, God's not asking most of us to sell everything and give him 100%. He only asked two people in scripture to do that. He, he presumably asked the woman with the two coins, because she did. And then he asked the rich young ruler, and he couldn't do it. But unless God specific, specifically tells you to give him 100%, he's probably not asking you to give him 100%. But he is very clearly asking you to honor him with 100%. And so what are we not giving? What is not for him? What is not being driven by the gospel in a way that our generosity to God is so preeminent in our lives? I want to close with this. As we've been on this take root journey, I want to ask ourselves this question. What roots you? Is it the gospel? Is it financial goals for your life like I once had and like my father once had and that we still fight with, by the way, because God is continually sanctifying us? Are you driven by the gospel in every way in your giving? What roots you? I'd like to pray for two different groups of people within the sound of uh, this message today. The, the, The first group might be some of us in the room that... We've never joined the journey of giving simply because we'd seen it as a rule. 
My friend Kimberly was like that when it came to purity. She merely saw it as a rule to follow and didn't understand the gospel behind it. Many people are that way. And so I want to invite you, if you are someone who's just never joined the journey of generosity because you only saw it as a certain output that you had to have, a certain amount you had to have, a certain percentage that you had to have, I want to invite you to be freed from that, to be broken from that. That if anyone ever told you that, that is not what Jesus is telling you. Think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That tax collector said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. I'm not doing those things, but I want to do those things. Jesus's arms are open wide. Be driven by the gospel. Be driven by an input, not by an output. And I would imagine there's a second group of us here today, and this might be the larger group. I'll put myself in this category. That for us, we may have been giving for years, decades even, And possibly in what would be considered a very generous way. You know, I am just continually overwhelmed by Christ Church's generosity. You are one of the most generous churches in the United States and probably in the world. I hope you know that. God is doing amazing things in and through this church. I also have a feeling that he's not done. I also have a feeling that what Paul talks about in the book of 2 Corinthians, his second letter, that early church he's trying to form, form their teachings about what Jesus, what Jesus has said so clearly. He says, this service that you perform is not only providing the needs for the Lord's people, it's actually overflowing in expressions of thanks to God because of your confession of the gospel. Is that how you're giving? Are you giving in a gospel-driven way? Are you giving in a way where your generosity is preeminent to the rest of your lives? It's so big for your britches that other things are going to have to change. And that in that change, people will see Jesus. And I want to invite the second group of us to ask him, Lord, are you really changing me? Is there more you have to transform so that you can be seen more clearly in my life? That's the point. That he is honored and he is glorified. I want to pray for those groups today. And I also want to invite just the Lord that he would never keep us comfortable. That he would never allow us to be complacent. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for your truths. And we are thankful that your son Jesus died on a cross for us. So that we might have eternal life in heaven with you. God, that is not lost on us, even though the vast nature of that is so wide and so deep and we can never fully comprehend it. Lord, we seek to understand it more fully. God, let us never be complacent. Let us never be finished. You are always working on us. You are always making us more like you. So Lord, I pray for those that for the first time might be taking a step into generosity because it is not a rule. It is not something that is merely to be done as an output. But Lord, would you help them seek to understand the input of your gospel message that would drive possibly generosity in them for the very first time. And God, for the rest of us, Would you allow us to open our hands 100% to find areas of our lives that are not driven by the gospel? Areas of our lives where we are truly not offering up everything to you. Whether it's, it's something that we are hoarding in our savings or it's an area of our life that we're spending that we're not glorifying to you. Lord, would you be preeminent in our lives and in our giving so that all things may be to you, by you, through you, and for you? It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.